Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to another edition of Questions for Corbett. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you from the sunny climes of Western Japan here in December of 2022 with episode 94 of the Questions for Corbett series on a false flags Q&A. And yes, exactly as advertised last week on Questions for Corbett, where you will hopefully remember that I went through the false flags reading list and went through the dozens and dozens of books that were consulted in the creation of the False Flags, The Secret History of Al-Qaeda documentary. I did put out the call. If you have any questions about that documentary or related to those subjects, please write in. And you responded to that call. So we've got several juicy questions on the table for today. Let's dig in. Uh, And first of all, uh, Mia Copa. I must have not done my duties as a as a media creator and host here at the Corbett Report because I've noted from a number of people over the past couple of months that they've had some problems finding the documentary or finding it in one place or accessing the transcript or what have you, even in my own audience. For example, uh, when we did the watch-along of part three of the Al-Qaeda documentary, um, myself and Brock West and Ryan Christian, we all did a watch along and we talked about that documentary. Um, I did post that, obviously, that conversation up to my website after it was live streamed by The Last American Vagabond. Um, But even people in my own audience were somewhat confused by that. I noticed, for example, Lumen writing, thank you, James, for this very informative documentary and for the part three transcript, as it's easier to take in the complicated content while reading it, would like access to the transcripts for part one and part two as well. Question mark. Or uh, Stephen L., who wrote that as of 12 o'clock CDT on September 20th, the video seems to be missing the documentary and only includes the discussion of the documentary. As I say, I posted up the discussion from the watch along um, as its own standalone interview on the Corporate Report website. So I guess the question that several people have had, how do I access this documentary? Where is this transcript? Where, where, how do I watch the different parts of the documentary? Well, I'm sorry for for hiding that from you. (laughs) Uh, As with all of my work, it is available 100% completely for free to the general public. And the magic words here are CorbettReport.com slash Al-Qaeda. That's CorbettReport.com slash A-L-Q-A-E-D-A. Type that into your browser and you will find the complete hyperlinked transcript of all three parts of the documentary, including video and audio downloads and links to all of the various social media platforms on which the documentary is hosted. It is all there for you. That is the one-stop shop. So CorbettReport.com slash Al-Qaeda is where you can find the complete documentary. My apologies for never mentioning that once. CorbettReport.com slash A-L-Q-A-E-D-A. CorbettReport.com slash Al-Qaeda. CorbettReport.com slash Al-Qaeda. CorbettReport.com slash Al-Qaeda. The one-stop shop, the one link you need is CorbettReport.com slash Al-Qaeda. Tune in next week for questions for Corbett number 95 on where do I find the big oil documentary, James? All right, seriously though, moving along to the next question. Uh, I had a question in via email from a Hugo back in October who wrote, I wonder if you will be making DVDs of the three episodes of The Secret History of Al-Qaeda. Well, yes, indeed. Thank you, Hugo. And yes, the DVD did take a while to put together. It was hard to source a three DVD manufacturer for some reason. But anyway, 
It's now available. False Flags, The Secret History of Al-Qaeda. The three DVD set is now available from newworldnextweek.com. And uh, it is now in stock and it is shipping out this week. So if you order it now, it should be coming in the very near future. But I cannot guarantee a Christmas delivery, obviously. Um, anyway, thank you to all those people who do support the work. As I say, it is 100% for free, but... If you would like to support it and have a physical copy, this is probably the best way to do that. Um, I also had a question in from Leadhead1789. Uh, great stuff as always, James. Will you be uploading a downloadable file that contains all three parts of this documentary into one video, similar to how the World War I conspiracy or 9-11 whistleblowers was done? Thank you for the question, Leadhead1789. The answer is yes, I will. All right. Let's get into a question from Justin, who writes, Hi, James. You noted why invade Afghanistan, but why invade Iraq? Or is it for the same reasons? And is there any evidence Al-Qaeda, bin Laden, and or Saddam Hussein were threatening Bush and his family by revealing secrets about them? And sorry, one other question, slightly out of left field, but still related. How accurate is the film Vice on Cheney, and how important is his role in 9-11 and the War on Terror? Thank you for all your work, Justin. All right, Justin, thank you for that. Uh, uh, last part first, regarding the film Vice. I did see it, I believe, on a plane, so I was partially paying attention. Uh, it didn't get a lot out of it. I'm... I'm sure it broadly tells the sort of bare-bones biographical story, but you're not going to get into the nitty-gritty details of Cheney or the powers behind him or the way he really operates or the way he chuckles at the uh, yokels back home in Wyoming who elect him for office and he won't dare tell them about his former presidency of the Council on Foreign Relations or things along those lines. As he has admitted in the past, I'm sure you know that famous potential Hall of Shame-worthy clip. Anyway... Um, so I, I wouldn't take Vice as some sort of template of, oh, now I'm really going to get the nitty-gritty details on Cheney. Um, it's Hollywood schlock and should be treated as such. As for Cheney's role in 9-11 and the War of Terror, yes, Cheney played a very important role, as was often stated in the 9-11 truth community back in that time period. Uh, the phrase was not impeach Bush, it was impeach Cheney first. Because if you impeach Bush and Cheney steps into that role of ultimate authority, that might be um, the worst. Because really, Bush was uh, more of a puppet than a actual leader, decider, whatever he framed himself to be. Certainly, certainly in that first term in office, he was being led along by the nose by the various neocons who he did put into positions in his cabinet. But I think uh, he... I, I certainly don't think Bush was masterminding 9-11. Uh, I don't think Cheney was necessarily masterminding 9-11, but I'm sure he had an operational role in what became of 9-11. For more details on that, you could turn to, for example, the work of Michael Rupert, who did really quite uh, definitively lay the the blame for 9-11 on the doorstep of Cheney um, by asserting that it was... Cheney, he, the way he interpreted it was essentially that Cheney took over all the security, the sort of the emergency uh, government powers pre-9-11, set them all up so that he would be the ultimate power and authority on the day of 9-11. Certainly, I think he had more of an operational role 
in what was actually taking place that day there in the Presidential Emergency Operations Center um, in the bowels of the White House in that fortified bunker. He was the one who was actually there and actually barking orders at people as testified to by Norman Mineta and others, whereas Bush was gallivanting around under threat. Angel is next. Remember all that? So anyway, yes, Cheney absolutely had an important part to play in that. And as Peter Dale Scott and others, Dan Hamburg and others have pointed out, um, Cheney and Rumsfeld had an incredibly important role to play in the decades prior to 9-11 in previous administrations, going all the way back to the time of Nixon and Ford, um, shaping um, uh, the continuity of government plans for just such an emergency. And lo and behold, on 9-11, those plans became operationalized. So yes, Cheney had an important role. Now getting to the prior question about why Iraq Okay, we get some idea about Afghanistan. And in fact, if you haven't watched Blood on the Cutting Room Floor, you don't even know about the extra several minutes on Afghanistan and the why of Afghanistan that was originally in there. And I've, of course, done much, much more on that particular topic. Just type Afghanistan into the search bar on corporatereport.com and you'll see several reports that I've done over the years elaborating in greater detail on the whys of Afghanistan. But similarly to why invade Afghanistan or the question of why 9-11 at all? Why did why would they do this? Why did it happen? Uh, I, I don't think there is one singular answer to the exclusion of all others and no other answers make sense. No, it doesn't work like that. As I have said, these major events come together because a number of different players at the table benefit from them. The invasion of Iraq is no e exception. So the obvious why of why invade Iraq, why were they so hungry to get into Iraq from day one of the Bush administration? Um, the obvious answer, the one that has been proffered for many, many years, the one that you undoubtedly heard back in the time of of the Bush administration, the one that the, the erstwhile anti-war left, remember when there was an anti-war left, um, that they trotted out and that uh, championed at that time was Iraq was about oil. And of course, initially uh, 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 naming the Iraq uh, invasion as Operation Iraqi Liberation, just one drawback with that, the acronym is OIL, sort of played into that, didn't it? And there are many real reasons, documentary reasons to point to in the record about why this is so. Um, perhaps the whole thesis was most infamously summarized by no less a personage than Alan Greenspan, who wrote in The Age of Turbulence, I am saddened that it is politically inconvenient to acknowledge what everyone knows. The Iraq war is largely about oil. Well, there you go. If Greenspan says it, it must be true, right? So you can find this, obviously, in any number of things. But let's just take one representative example from that time in 2007, at the height of the sort of the anti-Bush years. Um, you had an article like How Bush's Iraq Oil Grab Went Awry, which lays out the prosecutable case uh, for the fact that the Iraq invasion was fundamentally about oil. Um, reading from the article uh, and talking about the uh, Treasury Secretary Paul O'Neill, who I did play a little bit of in the False Flags documentary, talking about his experience in the very first meetings of the National Security Council, literally just days after the Bush administration had ensconced itself in Washington. Meetings were being held in order to 
decide on the upcoming invasion of Iraq. That was priority one from day one, as uh, Paul O'Neill has talked about. And following up on that, this article says, among the relevant documents later sent to National Security Council members, including O'Neill, was one prepared by the Defense Intelligence Agency, the DIA. It had already mapped Iraq's oil fields and exploration areas and listed America's American corporations likely to be interested in participating in Iraq's petroleum industry. Another DIA document in the package, entitled Foreign Suitors for Iraqi Oil Field Contracts, listed companies from 30 countries, France, Germany, Russia, and Britain, among others, their specialties and bidding histories. The attached maps pinpointed supergiant oil fields, other oil fields, and earmarked for production sharing, and divided the basically undeveloped but oil-rich southwest of Iraq into nine blocks, indicating promising areas for future exploration. According to high-flying oil insider Fala al-Jaburi, the Bush administration began making plans for Iraq's oil industry within weeks of Bush taking office in January 2001. In an interview with the BBC's Newsnight program, which aired on March 17, 2005, he referred to his participation in secret meetings in California, Washington, and the Middle East, where, among other things, he interviewed possible successors to Saddam Hussein. By January 2003, a plan for Iraqi oil crafted by the State Department and oil majors emerged under the guidance of Army uh, Amy Myers Jaff of the James A. Baker III Institute for Public Policy at Rice University. It recommended maintaining the state-owned Iraq National Oil Company, whose origins dated back to 1961, but open it up to foreign investment after an initial period in which U.S.-approved Iraqi managers would supervise the rehabilitation of the war-damaged oil infrastructure. The existence of this group would come to light in a report by the Wall Street Journal on March 3, 2003. And you can go on from there. There's plenty of other cookie crumbs along that t trail. And as I say, if you were following at the time or if you've done any research on it, I'm sure you will have seen that argument being put forward in a number of different places and a lot of documentary evidence to support it, that there was an element of oil. Of course, Cheney, again, heading up with his own uh, internal energy uh, commission that he was running, which talked um, repeatedly in the run-up to the Iraq war about securing oil supplies and uh, Iraqi... Iraq being one of the main destabilizing agents in the world oil uh, space at that time. But perhaps we can go one step further because it has certainly been put forward in the alternative media space. And I remember Alex Jones talking about this way back in the day, back in that 2007-2008 time frame, talking about, no, 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 they weren't going in in order to get the oil and pump it out for their crony corporations, they were going in in order to keep it in the ground because Hussein was pumping too much. Now, I don't have I don't have anything specifically on that, that Hussein was pumping wildly. In fact, uh, there was a point in 2000 where he did do a, uh, a short embargo of sorts where um, he limited Iraqi oil sales and other things along those lines. I don't have any information on him pumping too much oil. Um, but there is some logic to the idea that perhaps this wasn't about simply pumping the oil out, but perhaps creating that artificial scarcity, which I have talked about before on the Corporate Report, is one way of certainly driving up prices for your product. It may be in the oil company's interests not to go in and start pumping willy-nilly, but to go in and make sure it doesn't get pumped willy-nilly. 
um, which in a sense is not quite what ended up happening, but certainly the if if it was all and only about oil and only about the interests of the oil companies, well, it didn't quite work out for them in the way that that narrative would seem to suggest. Would it? Did it? Because even reading from that same article we were reading from before, making the prosecutable case for Iraq was about oil, it doesn't note um, that it did go awry. For example, it says the endorsement of the new Iraqi constitution by referendum in October 2005 finally killed the prospect of full-scale oil privatization in Iraq. Article 109 of that document stated clearly that hydrocarbons were national Iraqi property. That is, oil and gas would remain in the public sector. In March 2006, three years after the Anglo-American invasion of Iraq, the country's petroleum exports were 30% to 40% below pre-invasion levels. So, there you go. Uh, maybe it wasn't about getting the oil pumped out so much as making sure it didn't get pumped out. Anyway, well, okay, oil and oil geopolitics certainly had something to do with the invasion of Iraq, but it couldn't be everything. So let's turn to, of course, what's another obvious answer here? Israel. Yes, of course, Israel. And yes, Israel. As I point out in the documentary, there are documentary ways that we can document the obvious, um, not just the sort of general benefit to Israel of an invasion of Iraq, but the actual specific players and names of the, the people who were involved in setting up the policy in order to create the war that they themselves had been advocating for for years. Not just the project for a new American century, although of course those that gaggle of neocons um, certainly was part of this, this plot. But more specifically, we can point to people like David Wormser, uh, Douglas Fife, Richard Pearl, who... Back in that interim period where they were, uh, the Democrats were in power in the White House, so they were kind of in between jobs, as it were, and they were doing some work for some Israeli think tanks. And hey, why not? Advising the then Israeli president, Netanyahu himself, the prime minister, uh, Netanyahu, on what they could, what Israel should be doing in order to secure its realm. Yes, they wrote the document that I did cite in the documentary. I will point you to again. It's called A Clean Break, A New Strategy for Securing the Realm, which specifically stated, Israel can shape its strategic environment in cooperation with Turkey and Jordan by weakening, containing, and even rolling back Syria. This effort can focus on removing Saddam Hussein from power in Iraq, an important Israeli strategic objective in its own right, as a means of foiling Syria's regional ambitions. And then that document, the Clean Break document, actually had a follow-up, which is per perhaps less well-known, but people should familiarize themselves with as well. It's called Coping with Crumbling States, a Western and Israeli Balance of Power Strategy for the Levant. And the Levant, of course, is that geographical region that includes what we think of as most of the Middle East, including Israel and Syria and Turkey and Lebanon and Jordan and, and Iraq. So in this document, under the heading, Syria identifies the emerging power vacuum in Iraq, it notes that the Levant now resembles Europe of 1914. Interesting historical analogy for people who've watched the World War I conspiracy, huh? Uh, crumbling states like Syria, which uh, were largely forged out of World War I, anyway, uh, locked in bitter rivalries over a collapsing entity, Iraq. 
The prize itself is more powerful than any of the neighbors that co- that covet it. Iraq, a nation of 18 million, occupies some of the most strategically important and well-endowed territories of the Middle East. Given the cross-border alliances of tribes and the fragility of the secular Arab nationalist states in the Levant, strategic competition over Iraq may well lead to the collapse of some of the engaged regimes. Thus, whoever inherits Iraq dominates the entire Levant strategically. And Again, they're writing this around 1996, and of course, who gets shuffled in as part of the incoming Bush administration neocon uh, takeover of the White House? Pearl and Wolfowitz and Fife and Wormser and all of these same people end up getting shuffled into the Bush administration. Um, there's, uh, again, many people have done a lot of work on this, but I will point... As I was mentioning last week in the False Flags reading list, James Banford in A Pretext for War. As I say, the first half of the book talking about the day of 9-11, probably not that interesting to 9-11 researchers. But the second half of the book where he starts to get into the details of how the Iraq war was planned, he does name names and get into some of this specific history. Talking, for example, about Clean Break and some of these characters and how they went on to infest the Bush administration. So let's... Take a short listen to James Bamford's A Pretext for War. In the weeks and months following the NSC meeting, Pearl, Fife, and Wormser began taking their places in the Bush administration. Pearl became chairman of the reinvigorated and powerful Defense Policy Board, packing it with like-minded neoconservative superhawks anxious for battle. Fife was appointed to the highest policy position in the Pentagon, Under Secretary of Defense for Policy and Wormser moved into a top policy position in the State Department before later becoming Cheney's top Middle East expert. With the Pentagon now under Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld and his deputy, Paul Wolfowitz, both of whom had also long believed that Saddam Hussein should have been toppled during the first Gulf War, the war planners were given free reign. What was needed, however, was a pretext, perhaps a major crisis. Crises can be opportunities— wrote Wormser in his paper calling for an American-Israeli preemptive war throughout the Middle East. Seeing little reason or intelligence justification for war at the close of the inaugural National Security Council meeting, Treasury Secretary Paul O'Neill was perplexed. Who exactly was pushing this foreign policy, he wondered to himself. And why Saddam? Why now? And why was this central to U.S. interests? All right, there's much more detail in the book, but that's just a taste of some of the detail that you get in there about these particular people acting to secure the realm, as it were, in their clean break. So let's let's do the checklist. Okay, why invade Iraq? Oil, sure, check, why not? Israel, yep, check, why not? How about, uh, oh, preserving the petrodollar? Sure, why not? Who remembers this blast from the past from Saturday, Saturday, 15th of February, 2003? Iraq nets handsome profit by dumping dollar for euro. <laughs> what could go wrong? Again, February 2003, this is being reported in The Guardian. A bizarre political statement by Saddam Hussein has earned Iraq a windfall of hundreds of millions of euros. In October 2000, Iraq insisted on dumping the U.S. dollar, the currency of the enemy, for the more multilateral euro. 
The changeover was announced on almost exactly the same day that the euro reached its lowest ebb, buying just 82 cents, and the G7 finance ministers were forced to bail out the currency. On Friday, the euro had reached $1.08, up 30% from that time. Almost all of Iraq's oil exports under the United Nations Oil for Food program have been paid in euros since 2001. Around 26 billion euros has been paid for 3.3 billion barrels of oil into an escrow account in New York. And you can read the details there. But yes, literally just a couple months before the bombs, a month before the bombs start dropping, you know, this bizarre statement from Saddam Hussein, what, why on earth would some foreign leader possibly make such a bizarre statement about the currency of the enemy and start changing. Anyway, and in other news, oh, bombs are dropping on his head. <laughs> so, yeah, I think there may be some uh, oil geopolitics slash petrodollar geopolitics playing a role in here. And how about just assorted corporate interests, the corporatocracy, etc.? Of course, check. Um, for example, you may or may not remember in my, um, my report on the business of biotech engineering the genome for fun and profit from a few years ago where I was investigating the the development of the cartel, the seed cartel that seeks to GMO slash green revolution monopolize the food supply of the planet. And that contained an interesting little aside um, in there about that relates very much to this topic where I wrote, under the Iraqi occupation government, the post-Iraq uh, invasion occupation government, Administrator Paul Bremer III enacted a series of 100 new orders designed to open up the country to foreign investment. These orders included changes to the tax code, easing of restrictions on contracts and on leases for foreign corporations and banks, the lifting of restrictions on foreign ownership of the country's natural resources, and a series of other rules designed to benefit foreign mostly American banks, and corporations descending on the newly liberated country. But the most incredible of these changes was Order 81, a wholesale modification of the country's patent laws. It contained a provision for plant variety protection that allowed companies holding seed patents to sue farmers who were found to be saving, reusing, or planting seeds without the explicit approval of the patent holder. Iraq was effectively taken over, not by the American military, but by international conglomerates, including, of course, the seed cartel. And again, you can go and read about that in its context. That's just one example of one foot in the door. As I say, 100 orders being enacted by Bremer there that um, it opened a lot of different doors for a lot of businesses to start doing business in a previously verboten part of the global chessboard. On that note, hmm, Bremer, Bremer, hmm, that name rings a bell. I wonder what his connection to the false flag events of September 11th, 2001 could be. At the time of 9-11, Marsh's chief of risk management was Paul Bremer, the former managing director of Kissinger and Associates, who went on to oversee the U.S. occupation of Iraq. On the morning of 9-11, he was not in his office at Marsh and McLennan, but at NBC's TV studio, where he was delivering the official story of the attack. Uh, it's Paul Bremer. I want to make sure I'm getting your name right, because right. I'm just meeting you right. just at right. this moment. Right. You're, a, you're a terrorism expert. Counterterrorism, I hope. And, and, and can talk to us a little bit about, about uh, who, who could... I mean, there are a limited 
number yeah. of groups who could be responsible for something of this magnitude. Yes, this correct? is a very well-planned, very well-coordinated attack, which suggests it's very well-organized centrally, and there are only three or four candidates in the world, really, who could have conducted this attack. Bin Laden comes to mind right away, Mr. Bremer. Indeed, he certainly does. Bin Laden was involved in the first attack on the World Trade Center, which had as its intention doing exactly what happened here, which was to collapse both towers. He certainly has to be a prime suspect. But there are others in the Middle East, and uh, there are at least two states, Iran and Iraq, which should at least remain on the list of potential suspects. What, what kind of I, I don't recall anything like this. I, 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 Pearl Harbor happened a month before I was born. And I hear my parents talk about that as a seminal event in their lives all the time. I am not aware of anything like this in the United States before. Americans are now, I think it's fair to say, really scared. Uh, should, should we be? This is a day well, that will change our lives, isn't it? It is a day that will change our lives. It's a day when the war that the terrorists declared on the United States, and after all, they did declare war on us, uh, has been brought home to the United States in a much more dramatic way than we've seen before. So it will change our lives. Oh, right. That Bremer. Yeah, now I remember. All right. All of that to demonstrate that there is, I think, not one singular answer, probably to any of these major spectacular events, the why. The why is because a lot of people had a benefit from these events taking place, and that's why they go forward. So, um... Again, some of these explanations may be more important than others, but at any rate, they're all parts of that, and they're not mutually exclusive. Thank you for the question. Uh, moving along to a question that came in from Matt, who wrote, uh, Hello, James. I'm a huge fan and follower for years. I just learned of your release slash pre-order of the False Flag Al-Cia DVDs and can't wait to get a job to pre-order it to share with the family. Thank you. Uh, I'm watching the start of part two on YouTube right now. YouTube? Thanks to an uploader. Yada, yada, yada. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Well, whatever. <laughs> I'm wanting to know, what is your knowledge of the overall history of Dwight D. Eisenhower? After watching part one of your false flag documentary and just now starting the second, I'm curious of your take on the man that so many of us truth seekers have grown to admire, if it be only for his farewell speech about the military-industrial complex. I appreciate your time, as always, and keep up the amazing work you do. These documentaries should be given awards if the awards were legit. Peace and love from Central Illinois. Well, thank you very much for that, Matt. And, <laughs> yeah, well, the award shows are not legit, so <laughs> do not expect these types of documentaries to be receiving those types of accolades. Uh, thank you for the question. So, I have not done a deep dive on Eisenhower. I've not done a great deal of research specifically on Eisenhower. So, um, I don't have uh, all of the, the the details filled in on this. But my perception from the reading that I have done is that Eisenhower certainly became aware over the course of his administration the extent to which uh, America was being led down the garden path by the national security state, the military-industrial complex, which, as you say, he named... Uh, I have obviously played that speech a few times in corporate report history, including um, noting uh, that he wasn't just talking about the military-industrial complex, but the, the takeover of the apparatus of government by a scientific and technological elite. He was, I think, in a, in a sense, gesturing towards the technocratic takeover and the potential scientific industrial complex, the security industrial complex. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to um, to to frame that speech. That was a very, very important speech. 
um, for a lot of different reasons. So yes, I think Eisenhower should be remembered for his farewell speech. I don't know, admired. I don't know if admire is quite the right word, but there is the sense that uh, Eisenhower became aware of the extent to which even the President of the United States was being deceived and manipulated in order to gin up certain crises for the benefit of these players behind the scenes. Here's an interesting case in point. The whole missile gap idea um, is one that I would love to do more reading on. And I know there is an author out there who has done a couple of extensive book-length studies on this question in particular. So for people who don't know, in the 1950s, uh, in, into the early 1960s, there was this idea that the Soviets were starting to open up a missile gap against the United States. Those Soviets are producing more nukes than we are, guys, and we're going to fall behind. Um, our missiles are... Our stockpile is not high enough, so they're going to take over, and then they'll be able to kill us in a nuclear war or something along those lines. That was uh, being hyped as a threat at that time in the late 1950s into early 1960, at the time that Eisenhower was on his way out the door and a young budding JFK was on his way in the door. And there is an interesting relationship there where Eisenhower... Um, tried to downplay that and 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 let people know this is not this is not an issue this is not real don't worry about it and who attacked him on that very issue for his 1960 presidential campaign other than JFK who I know some some people in the truth community do admire and think is some vaunted hero to be worshipped um, well no JFK was pushing the missile gap in fact he even bragged, I believe privately, he bragged that um, Eisenhower was talking about these people who were pushing the myth of the missile gap. Well, I was one of them. <laughs> and he, yeah, JFK was on board with the whole missile gap theory and we need to start producing more missiles. Uh, it was in the course of his presidency that he started to realize, oh, this is a lie. And so JFK had, a, I think, a steep learning curve, which ended in his... Uh, brain matter being dispersed all over Dealey Plaza. So um, here's one window into that. There's a, a paper written by Christopher Pebble on, Preble, I should say, on whoever believed in the missile gap that goes into that story. That's an interesting story that I think gives an insight into this, this aspect of it. Because again, I think people tend to think the president knows everything. The president decides everything. Everything that happens in the government, the president is there with his stamp of approval or he's not, or it won't happen. No, 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 no. Presidents are led along by the nose. And JFK got his own taste of that with the Bay of Pigs and tried to fire people over that, like Dulles, and that didn't work out too well for him, did it? Uh, Eisenhower was sitting there going, this missile gap isn't real, the military-industrial complex is taking over, there's the chance of a takeover by a scientific and technological elite, we got some problems here, ringing the alarm with his farewell address, and I'll just throw this one into the mix as well, because I think it seems relevant here. How about uh, former President Truman's op-ed that was published in December 1963, just weeks after JFK got his brains blowing out, um, calling for the CIA to be disbanded, saying that he would not have approved it in the first place if he had known the sort of operations they were going to be engaged in. Literally weeks after the JFK assassination, Truman in uh, national news op-ed I think the CIA should be disbanded. Uh, incredible stuff. Really, really interesting stuff. Anyway, 
there's a whole rabbit hole there as well, which I'll provide a link to provide you a, a little bit of a foothold into that rabbit hole, and then you can go deep diving if you want. But anyway, um, it's an interesting question. As I say, I haven't done the deep dive on Eisenhower specifically and his administration and everything that he did, so I can't give you the definitive answer here, but I do think that Eisenhower and JFK and Truman, to some extent or other, throughout the course of their presidency or the years after, started to realize just how much the the coup d'etat had taken place, the national security coup d'etat. Incredibly important part of that that story in particular, and of course that broadens out into and results in, I think, events ultimately down the road, like a 9-11. And how do you get there? You get there through things like Operation Cyclone and Afghanistan and all of that. Again, it's all one rich tapestry, as James Evan Pilato would say. All right, um, let's move on to a question from Kat, who writes, After watching part three of the 9-11 doc, the False Flags documentary, uh, congratulations on yet another fine fine film series, by the way, it seemed appropriate to rewatch COVID-9-11. It's making me physically ill. Now, after all of the green pass plans seem pretty well confirmed, it's painfully obvious how orchestrated the whole COVID plan was. Would you consider doing another watch-along of this one with Brock and Ryan to help further tie all the pieces together? Uh, yes, uh, that's a that's an interesting proposition, Kat, so thank you for raising that. So for people who uh, have no idea, this is in reference to episode 383 of the Corporate Report podcast on COVID-9-11, from Homeland Security to Biosecurity, which was released on 9-11-2020, obviously drawing the parallels between the 9-11 event and the COVID event. And uh, yes, if you haven't rewatched that recently, you probably should. There's a lot of important info in there. So of course, that's available at CorbettReport.com slash COVID-911. That is the numerals, 911, COVID-911. Uh, and you can watch that complete um, podcast. Or we could watch it together. So thank you for the suggestion, Kat. I, I'd be up for it. I don't know about Brock or Ryan, but I'm sure some variation of that could, could take place. Tell you what, I'll put the ball in the listener's court. If I get 10 amens, please make that happen. Then we'll make it happen. And if not, we won't. All right, moving on to Jim, who writes... Just finished part three of the Al-Qaeda report. This is some serious reporting. Damn, son. As I required of my grade seven... Ontario history students. So what? What am I to do with the reality you have so coherently reported? How am I to translate all that into my day-to-day? Let me look to my circle of influence rather than my circle of concern to use the Stephen Covey model. Sincerely, thank you. Well, thank you for that, Jim. Uh, That's perfectly valid feedback. And if if you feel this information doesn't influence or affect your life in any way, then I've failed to do my duty, and uh, you should move on. (laughs) I'm not going to sit here and convince you that this is important. I think it is, and I've laid out my reasons for thinking that it is. But I'm, if, if, uh, if you are not convinced after having watched the documentary and my various attempts to explain it, then it's time to move on. Um, Let's move on to Eves or Ives. Let's go with Eves. What is your what is your understanding of the globalist agenda when it comes to the repeated backing of multiple sides of a conflict? For example, backing Saddam Saddam Hussein when he came to power in Iraq, then going to war against him and later overthrowing him, then backing the Shia, then backing Islamists, then swinging back towards the Shia regime and so on. Other examples might include decades of foreign policy in Afghanistan, bankster support for Bolshevism, Is the swinging back and forth intentional in order to create never-ending conflicts? 
Is it the result of incompetence? Or is it just the result of them recklessly pursuing unrelated foreign policy objectives? If it is int intentional, is there incontrovert incontrovertible evidence for this? And what is the primary motive? Okay, thank you for this question, Eves. It's an important question, and I think one that will occur to anyone who spends some time in this space, because yes, it's absolutely, it's just insane. It's absolutely insane. Enemy, friend, friend, enemy, enemy, friend, friend, enemy. Oh my god, they've become the enemy again. Who could have imagined it? This group that we supported has suddenly turned against us. It happens so much. Or this this regime is uh, intolerable, uh, so we'll overthrow them with these people. But these people are now the good guys. But then they these people have become the bad guys again. Uh, it happens with such regularity that uh, the obvious answer to this conundrum, which presents itself and which is undeniable. So it it requires an answer. So you get the sort of mainstream-ish answer of blowback. It's blowback, guys. These uh, intelligence agencies, these governments are supporting these regimes around the world, these rebel groups, these what have yous. And then, wouldn't you know it, it turns around and it blows back on them. Boy, these guys are just incompetent boobs, aren't they? And I guess there might be some plausibility to an explanation like that if this is, if we're talking about something that happened once or twice in modern history, but we're not. As you point out in your question, Eves, this has happened dozens, hundreds of times. I don't know. How many examples can you think of just off the top of your head, just involving the United States alone, let alone other players at this table? Obviously, this is, I, I think either these are really literal incompetent, bumbling idiots who can't tie their shoelaces and can't remember what happened two days ago are the the people in charge of these grand plans, or, or the blowback theory doesn't quite hold water, right? So which is it, and how can we prove it? Well, again, this is, I mean, a series like False Flags is an attempt to elaborate on this. No, this is not blowback. This this is a pattern of hundreds and hundreds of times when doors were opened, regular regulations were thrown out the window, security was breached, uh, there was lapses, these people were helped, this person was given a special pass, this person waltzed across borders despite the fact that that was completely impossible. All of these things over and over and over and over and over. It wasn't a mistake. It was an intentional plan. And so obviously the False Flags documentary itself is an attempt to um, to elaborate on that. If you want to talk about things like, oh, I don't know. Yeah, the banksters and Bolshevism. What, right, obviously. Uh, an important part of the story of World War One, which... As my longtime listeners know, was documented um, quite quite thoroughly by uh, Anthony Sutton, Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution. And uh, <laughs> I know someone with a great degree of chagrin talking about the way people wave books when they're talking about them. I can't read it. I can't see the cover. <laughs> Uh-oh. If only there was a place you could go in order to get the link to the thing that I'm talking about, like show notes or something. Hmm. I'm going to shake it just to... <laughs> the Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution by Anthony C. Sutton, who you can see on the back cover here, um, goes through incredible amount of documentary detail from State Department records and other documented sources about the way that Wall Street absolutely did 100% set up 
and help along the Bolsheviks and various points um, to enable the Russian Revolution there. Um, so again, you can spend a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of detail pointing this out. But again, I guess it comes back to the question of why. Why then would they do this? Why would they fund it? their enemies, right? Their enemies. Well, here's one, what I think should be a fairly obvious and commonsensical explanation for this. So it is the perfect, once you have a tool like this, you can employ it in any way you want in order to shape the global chessboard in any way you want. So for example, if you fund um, a group of radicals, group X, in order to overthrow your enemy, government A, then great, you know, you can fund up and gin up this, this group of radicals and they get rid of your enemy for you. Awesome. But then you can have your cake and eat it too, because then you can turn around and say, oh my God, look at this group of radicals, this group X, they're a big threat to us. And now, now they're in this country. So we now we have to go over here in order to get them. And then that same group of radicals can morph and turn into something that's still being funded behind the scenes by, by you and then can go over and start waging war on another person. This is the story of Al-Qaeda, as I'm sure you at least get the sense of from this documentary. Again, as extensive as it is, I had to gloss over the past 15 years or so of this story in which it just gets crazier and crazier, where literally you get people arguing, well, Al-Qaeda's now our friends in Syria. They're the good guys again. Okay. Uh, it's just it's just absolute insanity. But this is how the game works. And that's why it's so effective. Because it is the perfect excuse for entering any square of the chessboard at any time. You can uh, overthrow regimes with this group. Or you can point to them as the boogeyman that justifies your invasion of a country. So there's that sort of level at which this this is just a handy tool. And who cares, you know? consequences, consequences, as long as we control the end, end result of this, we can use it any way we want. Um, and then we can open doors for these radicals to come in and attack us and then say, oh my God, they attacked us. Now we have to set up this you know, never-ending war of terror that will justify, be the complete blank check for us to do anything we want all around the world for the rest of time. This will be a generational war, as we've been told. So there's that level of it. And I think, again, I think that explains much of it. But I think there is also a deeper level to this. Because at the deeper level, are these really the enemies? Really? Um, disregarding the Al-Qaeda idea for now, let's turn back to that Wall Street and the Bolshevik revolution. Was it was it really that the Bolsheviks were the enemies of the banksters? Or is it that the, the what was represented by various people in the ranks of the Bolsheviks. And again, whatever part they were playing in this, however much they really believed in this or knew that they were being used or didn't care that they were being used or whatever their relation to it is, maybe there were certain ideas embedded in that ideology that were actually part of the banksters' scheme, but ones that the banksters couldn't come out and advocate. Obviously, they couldn't advocate it for, for it themselves these ideas have to be introduced into the world, even in the form of a boogeyman that can be 
oh no, there's the enemy with their bad ideas. Don't look at those ideas, guys. Those are bad ideas. You know, eventually, some people are going to start looking at those ideas, and suddenly you have entered into a dialectic in which a previously unthinkable idea is now part of the discourse, and it now starts to merge with existing ideas, and the synthesis that results may be the actual intended long-term outcome of supposedly supporting the enemy, right? This is a point that Antony Sutton himself did make uh, in a clip that I've played a few times. Let's play it again, in which he explained why would the Wall Street people, why would they be funding the Bolshevik Revolution? Just tell us all over again why. Why? Just tell you won't find again. this in the textbooks. Why is to bring about, I suspect, a plan to control world society in which you and I won't find the freedoms to believe and think and do as we believe. But these uh, power brokers in actually envision at that time a one world government that would be socialist? Yes. The second statement I made was that they did not want the Soviet Union to develop into another free enterprise society and that this would offset, offset it. Aiding revolution would offset this event. That was made as a statement in 1919. You have various books, one by Gillette, the razor blade Gillette, uh, the, called The City, I think it was, which laid out this corporate socialism for the world to see as early as, what, 1905, 1910. So around the turn of the century, you begin to see actually written statements by these internationalist businessmen of the kind of socialist empire they wanted to bring about. It's there, but these books, of course, are not included in your courses in political science and history at the regular universities. Food for thought about how this might work on a deeper level than you might suspect at first glance. Anyway, thank you for the question, Eves, and thank you to all of the questioners and all of the people who have written in with their various feedback and support for the documentary. Especially thank you, obviously, to those who do purchase the DVD copy. I could not do this without your guys' support, so I do appreciate that, and I hope I can give something back with a nearly six-hour documentary on three DVDs available at newworldnextweek.com. But that's going to do it for this edition of Questions for Corbett. Always lots of questions to answer, and I look forward to answering more of them in the near future. Until then, I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Stay tuned. We all know the story of Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. Bin Laden was responsible for today's attack. So often was that story repeated in the wake of 9-11 that the hypnotized public forgot that it was, at base, just that. A story. If they didn't have an Osama bin Laden out there, they'd invent one. In False Flags, The Secret History of Al-Qaeda, you will learn the truth behind that story and uncover the lies that led to the War of Terror. Our war on terror begins with Al-Qaeda, but it does not end there. Watch the documentary for free at CorbettReport.com Al-Qaeda or support the filmmaker and purchase the documentary on DVD at newworldnextweek.com.